Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Lindsay Hilson, international editor of Britain's Channel 4 News, is, to my mind, the outstanding foreign correspondent of our time, television branch. She spent much of 2023, this year of wars, at the front, first in Ukraine and then in Israel. All wars are devastating to bear witness to, but the latter is particularly difficult. I caught up with her by Zoom while she was briefly at home in London, and our conversation ranged over the destruction of Gaza, connections, if any, to Ukraine, what other countries might do to step in and try and stop the fighting Hamas, and being Jewish and covering Israel's wars. Before we begin, a reminder. My podcast is dependent on listeners to keep going. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, Click on the donate button and make a donation so I can keep doing this work. Now, I began my conversation with Lindsay Hilson by asking her view of the Israel-Hamas war now that she'd had a few weeks off and her experiences had had time to percolate through her brain down into her heart and her soul. I think I'm thinking about two things, really. I'm thinking about Gaza itself. And of course, like many other journalists, I'm in touch with um, friends in Gaza, people who I've worked with in Gaza. And it's that awful thing where you don't want to bother them every day, but sort of every few days you send a message like, you know, how are you doing? How are things? And what you really mean is, are you still alive? Is your family still alive? So, and and then people respond, you know, Alhamdulillah, you know, we are all right and so on. And, you know, I mean, one of the people I'm in, in touch with is the Channel 4 News stringer there, Yusuf, and he's looking after 60 people. Now, he's still filming. He's still reporting. He's still working. And at the same time, he has a wife and two children. That's the nuclear family. And then he went to stay initially when they had to leave uh, Gaza City and his home was destroyed in the first few days. He went to stay with family members in Khan Yunus. Then Khan Yunus became impossible and so not only did the nuclear family have to go further south to Rafa, but he had to take all of the extended family um, as well. And so now he's looking after 60 people. And he found a patch of land and he managed to find some tents. And there was a day when he said, I can't work because we've I've got to dig latrines. So, you know, I found myself thinking about that. And then I don't know if you saw that there was a very, um, a very good um visual and verbal analysis of the destruction in Gaza in the Wall Street Journal today. You know, half of the buildings in Gaza have been destroyed and a larger proportion of the homes. So it, it's going to take at least a year, they say, to clear the rubble, 10 years to rebuild. And when we're talking about electricity, we're talking about water, we're talking about all infrastructure as well as the actual buildings. So the Israelis have rendered Gaza uninhabitable. And we we talk about the day after, everybody's been doing this day after, who's going to govern Gaza on, in the day after. But at the moment, what I'm thinking about is how on earth are people going to be able to, to live? How are they going to survive? Are they expected to live in tents for, for 10 years? Or... You know, are the Israelis, as some members of the Israeli government have been saying, and other people who are not in the government, but to the right, that the real aim is 
is to drive people out of Gaza, to make it completely impossible for them to live there. So that's the first thing on my mind. And then I have a wider war thing, but let's talk about Gaza first and then the wider issues. Okay, I have a question because for all the destruction and massive destruction that we see, I mean, it seems pretty clear that one of the war aims, you mentioned the right. I mean, this is the most right-wing government which is saying something in Israel's history. It has been to make it uninhabitable and just force people to leave because they will have no place to live. But leaving that aside, even with this destruction, there are still rockets coming out of Gaza. How is this possible, Lindsay? Well, I guess it's possible because in the years since 2014, um, when you've had relative quiet, um, Hamas has been building up its its supply thanks to the Iranians. And, um, you know, the Israeli intelligence didn't um, pick this up because they took their eye off the ball and uh, journalists didn't pick this up because we had our eye off the ball too. Um, though, frankly, it was... I don't think that the journalists have ever been very good on understanding how you know, the arming of Hamas and Hamas, I think Hamas has done a uh, extremely effective job on keeping their arming and rearming secret. And um, yeah, so they're they're still able. I mean, every day I'm you know hearing of rockets firing into Israel. Now, obviously, those rockets are not particularly effective. They very rarely kill anybody. I mean, when I was in Israel, I mean, it, Iron Dome is, a, is an extraordinarily marvellous thing. I mean, every time a rocket came in when I was in Tel Aviv um, or Starot, you know, all the Israelis would run for cover. Um, being journalists, we don't do that. We went outside to have a look at the Iron Dome because it was and try and take pictures of it because it's incredible. It's fantastic. You know, you look up in the sky, you can go pop, 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 and they're shot down. So Iron Dome is a is a really extraordinary thing. But yeah, the Hamas and presumably Islamic Jihad, they've been very strategic on their rearming and keeping their stuff until they really needed it, which is now. And that also speaks to the fact that the Israeli um, tactics are not working. The Netanyahu says... We're going in there, we're bombing and going in on the ground in order to destroy Hamas. Now, people have been saying from the beginning, this is not possible. You can't destroy um, an idea, a movement, and so on. Um, but it seems you can't even destroy a military force because um, they have, you know, with in amongst all this destruction, they have failed to take out important Hamas commanders and the ability to launch rockets. But the buildings have, have been destroyed. And and I guess, has, is there any reasonable speculation that you've heard about where they're launching from? Are they dragging these things out of tunnels briefly and then launching them and then running away? I mean, what is going on? I just don't know. You, you know, even in very urbanized Gaza, there are bits of wasteland and the odd tree and so on. But I, I don't know how they're how they're doing that. And of course, the incredibly brave Palestinian journalists um, there are, of which 
I'm not sure what the number is, but I think we've had more than 80 Palestinian journalists who've been killed. This is the largest number of journalists killed ever. There's never been, I mean, this is, we're way, way beyond the number of journalists killed throughout the entire Vietnam War. You know, it's it's horrendous how many journalists have been killed. And in a sense, that I mean, obviously this is reported and you have organisations like the Commission to Protect Journalists and Reporters of Frontières who are making a fuss about this. But you, you do wonder sometimes if the wider world doesn't make a fuss about it because they're not Western journalists. If you think about how much fuss is made when a Western journalist is killed, not how much less fuss is made when a Palestinian journalist is killed. You know, there there are limitations and... Um, I'm sure that they cannot, if they do know where uh, Hamas rockets are being launched from, um, they would be killed by the the other side. So, no, we don't know. Now, this is not your first coverage of an Israel-Hamas flare-up. This is a war. It puts the other ones into the shade. Um, So you've been, you were there in 2014, Yes, I don't, you know, I'm trying to, it's an awful thing. I actually can't remember. We, I think in 2014, I was just on the Israeli side, but on di- on different in different ones of these. Sometimes I've been uh, remained in Israel, and sometimes I've gone into to Gaza. It's varied with the with the different ones. Yeah. Well, is there a way for you to to think and and do some kind of either a chronological comparison? I mean, clearly this is just Hamas's attack was out of was beyond any previous parameters for terror attacks. Um, the Israeli response has been beyond any previous parameters. Taking Take that as a given. But I do wonder if you could just put into context why this problem has persisted well. I mean, for decades, um, it seems a, a kind of codependency to me. And I've got an article coming out next week in, in an online magazine pointing that out, that there's a codependency here between uh, particularly Benjamin Netanyahu yeah. and, and the leadership of Hamas, which changes from time to time, but it essentially understands that Israel's good graces allow it to continue. So I get that. But because you've been going in and out for a very long time now, um, if you could just try and find some comparisons or points of comparison. Back in, I think it was 2006. So when Hamas, I mean, I was there when Hamas came to power um, when they um, won that election. And I think I completely underestimated at the time the significance of that because the Israelis, at that point, the Israelis favoured Fatah over Hamas, but they didn't, you know, you had Fatah fighters as well as Hamas fighters, and they didn't actually make that much of a distinction. Uh, But I remember in those days, I can remember being in Rafah when the Israelis were attacking, and, um, you know, I I can't even remember who they were after, any particular individual or just, you know, as that horrendous phrase is trying to, to mow the grass. And I think that one of the things that is consistent is that they, until now, was that they were pretending that they weren't doing it. So I can remember being on, you know, in the rubble of Palestinian houses in Rafa, and somebody passed me, a friend passed me, and said, you know, the Israelis are saying that they haven't hit this area. And so I stood on in the, in the middle of it and called the IDF, and I said, um, you know, can you tell me, uh, why you have hit this particular neighbourhood. And they said, we haven't hit it. And I said, well, so how come I'm standing on a pile of rubble? And then there was a long pause and they said, we'll get back to you. 
And so you, you had that ludicrous deniability, and you, you still get some of that ludicrous deniability where they pretend they haven't cut hit a place um, when, in fact, they have. But it's sort of more hollow now in the sense that they say we're trying to protect civilian lives. And so there's a there's a form of words that the Israelis use, but it's clearly not true. And so you have to understand that they really, really, really want everybody to know what they're doing this time. They really want everybody to know that it's it's all out war. And I mean, I can't remember who it was who said that. Um, they were more interested in uh, damage than accuracy. Somebody said that at, at the beginning. One of the um, one of uh, Netanyahu's cabinet said that at the beginning. Um, it's more damage is more important than accuracy. Well, I don't think they would have ever said that before. And I think that, and then obviously, as you say, there's been this codependency, and one of the things which I do. Find fascinating is how you know it's come out that Netanyahu saw Hamas as a way of avoiding having to uh, go forward with a two-state solution, because as long as Hamas was there, you could argue that this was not viable because they were terrorists, etc. But that, but in a sense, the left bought into that as well, because obviously that's a very right-wing thing. You don't want a two-state solution. And therefore, you're going to keep this impossible terrorist organization going. But I think that the left in Israel also wanted to believe that Hamas um, was was not as horrible as it is, and was not, and that it was right to let the Qataris send in all this money so that people in Gaza could survive, which they did just about. And so you can argue, I think, that there's been a, a sort of unwitting conspiracy within all of the Israeli body politic to, to let this get to the state it, it has, and therefore there being an incentive for the intelligence and the military not to take Hamas as seriously as a threat as obviously they should have done, and that's what, what led you to October the 7th. You know that I was in Israel 90 days before, I was making something to mark the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. And the people I spoke to, mostly people my age, only a little bit older than you, Lindsay. And a little bit older, Michael. That's, um, you know, come on, let's be fair. I, uh, no, I, it's only a little bit. Come on. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, in, in talking to people, and it, it was as they say in Israel, what was your war, you know, and for people my age, the 1973 war was their war, how it changed Israeli society and so on. And you know, guy I know said, I asked him about well, what about Gaza? And he said, well, if you want to talk to Gazans, just go down to any building site and you'll, you'll, and ask someone. Yeah, and, and he said they come in. He said, you know, they come in at the start of the work week and either in the good weather, they sleep on the building site because it's such a pain in the ass to go back and forth um, or they sleep on rooftops, whatever. You can do that in the Middle East. And um, I didn't. And I kind of regret it because, I that now. you yeah. know, because I, I might have got some sense of what people were thinking. And I get the sense that ordinary Gazans might not have been thinking this kind of war either. Oh, I'm sure that they 
were not. I'm sure that ordinary Gazans, you know, most of those people who, you know, coming into work were, were pleased that they could work and that they could um, could earn a bit of money because, I mean, we we can't forget that despite the money that was allowed to go in from, from Qatar and despite um, the work permits that were given to, to some people, you know, most Gazans were living under, had been living under blockade since 2006 and, you know, life was pretty grim for, for most people. In your previous coverage, did you ever have a chance to quietly take aside ordinary Gazans and talk about Hamas and living under Hamas? Yeah, look, and uh, and right at the beginning, you remember Dahlan, the fat, one of the Fatah leaders, was um, uh, who lost the election in two thousand and six. And during that election, I talked to lots of um, I talked to lots of people, and um, yeah, and but you know that that election we're going way back now was uh, Fatahs to lose because of because of corruption, and I think that. You know, there's an Israeli narrative that, you know, oh, they voted for Hamas because they all love Hamas and they want to kill Israelis. No, a lot of people who voted for Hamas and some people may still have thought Hamas was preferable to Fatah because they didn't see it as being as corrupt. Now, I think that that has changed over the years because you see the fat cat Hamas leaders in, you know, in Qatar and, and so on. But they saw it as less corrupt. And people do hate the Israelis. I mean, they live under occupation and they hate the Israelis. Doesn't mean that they want to kill Jews. Doesn't mean that they support what happened on October seventh. But they do hate their occupiers. Um, Hamas gave um, gave expression to that. But I think that and people are also afraid of Hamas, and I saw that increasing, particularly amongst women, because you saw you know restrictions on women. I can remember going and trying to do a story once. You know, you'd had um, sports amongst girls, UNRWA, organised by UNRWA. You know, girls playing basketball and all of this kind of thing, and that became increasingly difficult under under Hamas and people didn't didn't like that. But there's nothing they could do about it. It's a repressive it's a repressive government, a repressive regime. So people are also careful about what they said. So you have this situation with people in Gaza who hate Israelis but maybe don't want to kill Jews. And you have the situation in Israel where there are plenty of people who hate Hamas and are quite happy to see Gaza destroyed. Neither side is capable of finding a way to not be at war. And because there is a knock-on effect in the wider world, you need to have larger powers, not Mm. regional powers, but larger powers, and I'm being euphemistic, the United States, to get involved. Um, But the U.S., you said something at the start about... um, not of this conversation, but the start of the conflict, that Blinken, in visiting Mahmoud Abbas, who leads the Mm. Palestinian Authority, was uh, endorsing a bankrupt policy, that there there needed to be something new, was was the inference of of that, I think. And what would you see as being something new and possible? So you think that after peace in the Middle East has evaded all of these politicians and statespeople, um, over decades and decades, that I, a mere journalist, may have an idea that other people have. Well, an idea I don't know. I, listen. By your uh, by your faith in me, Michael. Oh come on! I'm not. I'm not. I'm not putting you on the spot. I I am wondering though, because we're coming into a new year. Why not think about 
how this would how will this end for warning yeah look fair enough but let's go for a warning first and one of the things i'm we're all looking at is the wider war and i think this is this is relevant so bear with me i'm very struck at how by how the israelis are now so they killed a very important iranian commander musavi um uh, Revolutionary Guard commander who was in Syria, and we see them. Obviously, the the border with Lebanon is is increasingly fractious, and and then we also see Iranian backed um, militia in Iraq uh, increasingly attacking the few U.S. Um, bases which are still in Iraq. And when I looked at that. Israeli attack on uh, on this significant commander. I thought, oh, are the Israelis trying to pull the Americans in? Are the are the Israelis worried about American pressure on them to stop the war in Gaza? And one way of dealing with that is, I don't want to say provoke a wider war because that sounds more dramatic, but to to make sure that the Americans are implicated on the Israeli side in the war. And that can be done with response to the Houthis attacking shipping, or it can be done in this um, nexus between particularly Syria and Iraq, maybe even more so than Lebanon. Because we've seen um, Nasrallah, the Hezbollah leader, saying, basically, I don't want to get involved. But there comes a point where he has to get involved with what I have, if Iran tells him to. And if the Israelis are attacking lots of Iranian bases in Syria and killing important people, that could be the point where the Iranians say to him, sorry, mate, you have to get more involved. And so that's one of the things that's bothering me as we go into the new year, which is that, you know, the, the Americans who are already not pressuring Israel very much to, to stop, but a little bit. And we, if everybody keeps saying, oh, that's going to increase. But if they are on the same side as Israel in that wider war, that becomes more difficult, doesn't it? Mm. What do you think? Do you think I'm being conspiratorial by raising that? What, the, the idea that, that, the, that Israel government, the, the Israeli government... Yes. They, they, not all Israelis, but the, the, this, Israeli this Israeli government yeah. is um, capable of dragging the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, Netanyahu is, has been quoted during the course of this war and as saying that he knows how to deal with the Americans. I mean, he's been dealing with American presidents going back to the mid-1990s. With his first and, and I tell you something that Moshe Dayan said. Moshe Dayan said... We get three things from the Americans. We get political support, we get arms, and we get advice. And we take the first two and ignore the last. I think that that sounds about right. Cert- certainly with, with with Bibi Netanyahu, you know that he doesn't listen to anyone and yeah. thinks that, here, here's a little known fact, he was in high school in suburban Philadelphia at the same time I was in high school in suburban oh, really? Philadelphia, yeah. ten miles apart. He was a he, he played football, soccer, as we call it in America, and I think my high school played his high school. So I may well have watched him yes. as, as a young guy. But um, no, he thinks he knows America better than Americans, and he certainly 
has a sense of the uh, he knows the political sensibilities of American Jewry. I think he's well aware that liberal that it's basically a liberal community, but that there's a significant minority in in and around APAC that will back him and can create pressure. I, I don't think I, I, I'm certain he knows that much, and I do think it's possible. I but I also wonder. I don't think I don't think it's knowable. You were. Yeah. As you said at the, when I first brought this question up, that perhaps mere journalists might actually have a better idea of what the way forward would be than people in the State Department, for goodness sake, because we are—you've been on the ground, and many in the State Department haven't. Let, let, let me just shift things around here from this rather unpleasant conflict and, and ask: You spent a considerable amount of 2023 also in Ukraine. I did. In your mind, do you ever connect the two? Do you see? Yeah, let me just leave that question there. Is there any connection? Yeah, somebody's a very a young friend of mine who works for the uh, Washington Post, and she's twenty nine. Said something interesting to me, and she said, "Oh, you know, I think Ukraine people see as the boomers' war, and uh, and Gaza is the Gen Z war." And what she meant by that, it was quite interesting because what she meant by it was your generation, baby boomers, you connect immediately to the war in Ukraine because it's about the Cold War, which of course we lived through as we were as we were growing up. And so there's a sort of logic that Russia becomes the enemy again. That's the way it always was, right? And then, but the Gaza war, younger people have a completely different view on it because they are not connected to the Holocaust and World War II in any way. We grew up seeing that as, you know, it was an important, it was our parents' life, right? It was our parents' lifetime. So we inherited some of that. Whereas, you know, younger people now don't have a, a living memory of that. And they just see this horrendous um, onslaught on on the Gazans, on the Palestinians, and they see a, a, a total injustice and they see they put a template on it, which I don't think completely works, which is your sort of colonial settler template. I, I don't completely buy that. I buy it a little bit to some extent. And so I've been trying to think about that a little bit, about, you know, how the generation I'm part of has no doubts about the war in Ukraine and sees Russia as a complete aggressor, and that's how I see it, and how we are more equivocal about the war in Gaza because of history. And so then I just find myself, I mean, as we get older, I think that we think history is more and more important. And I think that understanding that Putin's attachment to history and to the Russian empire is critical to understanding why he invaded Ukraine. It's not about, you know, NATO and any of that. It's about restoring the Russian Empire. And I think that I certainly grew up thinking that the Soviet Union was all about ideology. It was about communism. And I no longer think that. I now think it was an extension of the of the Russian Empire. And, you know, I think I failed to understand that because I didn't understand enough history. And then I wonder whether understanding history and the history of the Holocaust and World War II and, World War II and, and so on and the origin of Israel is that helping or hampering me in in understanding what's going on in 
in Gaza, because of course I see that background, but maybe that is blinding me to the utter cruelty of what's being inflicted on the on the Palestinian people. So I'm a bit stuck on that, Michael. Where are you? Where am I? Well, I I think that for those of us of a certain age in the Jewish diaspora, this is a very difficult conflict because the upsurge of it goes well beyond anti-Zionism. Um, yeah. to, to really stark anti-Semitism. And, you know, I live in a neighborhood now. I don't live in Stoke Newington anymore. I live over in Bow, which is 40% Muslim anyway. And all, all the street lamps, not all the street lamps, but many of the street lamps will have Palestinian flags flying from them. And people have asked me about that. I said, well, I'm sure if you go to Golders Green, you'll find Israeli flags proudly displayed in shop windows as well i i don't know and it it's it's something that perplexes me i'm thinking of writing a modern guide for the perplexed not like rambam but um something more geopolitical for the 21st century you know i'll, I'll be honest with you lindsay i was working on an essay and have been working on an essay for about a year talking about the the modern diaspora and how mm. those of us who live outside of Israel will often feel that we are not super Jews. We are not really as Jewish as Israelis. We don't speak Hebrew. We don't serve in the IDF wearing a badge with the star of David on it, on our shoulders. And for years, you know, hyphenates, I'm an American, a Jewish American, you're a British Jew, whatever. And Israelis are just Israelis. They aren't mm. hyphenated. But at the start of the year, I was beginning to feel more comfortable about saying, well, we're all equal, and you're an Israeli Jew, because your culture is mm -hmm. entirely different than mine. And there are certain principles of what I'd like to think is a kind of moral center to being Jewish. There's a very painful history that we all share, but you have your life, I have my life, and your sense of culture is entirely different than mine. And I was quite happy to spend those weeks in Tel Aviv and going up to Jerusalem to do interviews and feel confident in that view. And then October 7th happened, and suddenly we're all in the same boat, and I'm completely confused again and perplexed. So that's my answer to the question. And part of me feels that those of I have written this in the newly launched first rough draft of history substack that those of us in the diaspora because we're not being shot at have a responsibility to stay calm and try and find a reasonable way out to stop the stay revenge and to stay humane exactly because um, that's the issue and you know spending one of the things which I think I find, um, and maybe this is another connection between Ukraine and and Gaza and Israel, is is what happens to people when they feel threatened and people become extremely harsh and they, you know, dehumanize the enemy. It's completely understandable, and and it, and to stand to step aside from that is to is to make it clear that you have not been threatened. I have not had those had those feelings because I haven't been the person who's on the end of it. But I would find it uncomfortable um, to listen to some of the things that 
Ukrainians say about Russians, you know, and I would I say, but you know, is it all Russians? And they'd say, yeah, it's all Russians. We hate all Russians. They're all the same, and they all support this war. I say, well, not all of them do. And they say, yep, it's all Russians. We hate all Russians. And so then you have a similar thing with the Israelis refusing to, um, I, I would say willfully refusing to see a difference between Hamas and ordinary Palestinians, in, including children. And and so that's something that I've seen on both sides. And yet you, know, you have the whole thing about who is the victim here. And that's, and that's very interesting because, of course, Putin has a false narrative that Russians are the victims. Russians are not the victims. And that Russian, or at least some of them are the victims. They, they're victims of him. They're victims of his policies. Um, but they're certainly not the victims of, of Ukrainians um, or of Ukraine. And the idea that, you know, Russian speakers were in some way victimized, I mean, it's bollocks, right? I mean, as we all know, Zelensky is a Russian speaker from the from the east, from Krivi But I find the sort of um the, the reaction of um of people who feel under threat and the and the hatreds that people profess um i i find spending time amongst a lot of people who feel that like very disturbing it's profoundly disturbing however um however understandable it is it it's particularly disturbing i think in Israel, I had this experience, and this is a long, long time ago, but it goes to show how little changes there, uh, because it is in such a small geographical area. And the basic question remains the same that it's been as it has been for 55 years, which is what to do about the occupation. I, I was always amazed. It was 2001, and there were constant opinion polls. 70% of Israelis want peace. Now, the opinion polls never decide define what peace is yes and nobody's uh, ever going to say i want war that's, that's just no. the wrong and, question and and it would be the same thing um on the palestinian side 70 percent want peace okay now i had just come from spending most of the 1990s covering the end of the troubles in northern ireland and i was fascinated by the same by this number 70 because 70 percent often was the number that you heard People wanted peace in Northern Ireland, both communities. So, well, there's 70%. And I just happened to be there at the start of the Second Intifada. And one day, a, an Israeli woman soldier was killed. And I can assure you, Lindsay, 70% of Israelis did not want peace on that day. And, and they and so they started bombing Gaza. The day they started bombing Gaza, I was I can assure you that 70 percent of the Palestinians living in the West Bank, because I, I was in Jerusalem at that point, uh, had been in Ramallah the previous day. Those people did not want peace. Yeah. It's an inability to see beyond or to say it's enough. We've seen this before. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of our responsibility outside of the region to say you've seen this before you've seen this for 30 for 40 for 50 years and it was always the same story so perhaps adjust your attitude which is very hard i suppose when you're being shot at or your cousin has just been raped and murdered at a music festival in southern israel absolutely but i think you know if we're looking at a way forward obviously that the egyptians have come up with um a proposal 
um, which everybody is sort of poo-pooing. But at the same time, I, I do think it has um, it has the seeds of something in that it you know it starts with a ceasefire. Everything has to start with a ceasefire, and then it it goes on to more um, hostage exchanges and. Um, and obviously, there are still women and children, and I don't mean female soldiers. I mean women have nothing to do with it. Um, uh, being held hostage, and they must be—I mean, Hamas must be beside themselves wanting to get rid of some of these hostages by now. I would have thought because keep their no value dead, and um, keeping them alive must be increasingly difficult. And so, you know that, and obviously swapping for Palestinians. I mean, it has to be also noted. The number of Palestinians being held in Israeli prisons, um, more have been arrested since October the 7th than have been exchanged for hostages. So your absolute number of Palestinian prisoners in Israel is still going up, even though people are being exchanged. So that tells you something. Um, But, you know, that as as a start. And then there has to be... Given that Israel cannot destroy Hamas and doesn't even seem to be able to get the top leadership, um, there has this has to come to an end at some at some point in the next few weeks, few months. You know, they're making the rubble bounce. What more can they destroy? What more can they do by this this method? And although I obviously I agree with you that it's the Americans have a huge responsibility here, but actually. Egypt, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, these states can also be extremely influential, especially those which have, you know, relationships with with Israel, as many of them do now, because that's the only, they're the only people who have any kind of influence on on Hamas and who can, you know, do some kind of, of negotiation, because even a surrender is... It has to be negotiated, right? You really think that that these countries have that kind of power? I uh, think that I think that who can talk to Hamas? I mean, obviously, your main one is Iran, and Iran is a difficult is a difficult is the difficult thing because Iran, and obviously, we know that there are voices within Israel who are saying that now is the time to strike Iran, and obviously, that would bring the Americans in in a major way if they did that, and it could come to that. But certainly, you know, Qatar has some has some influence over over Hamas. I mean, not least that they can kick them out. You know, in the way that Fatah was kicked out of um, of Beirut back in the nineteen eighties um, and sent to Tunisia, they can kick them out of out of Doha. I'm not sure that they want to, and I'm not sure I'm not sure that the Qataris want them to. But they have, um, you know. They, they do have some agency. Qatar has some agency. Why? You think I'm wrong on that? You think it's just about the Americans? No, I don't think I don't think that at all. But I I do wonder if some of the newly friendly towards Israel sheikhs and emirs around the Gulf also play that game of yeah. taking the good stuff from the United States and and not necessarily helping them. And because there is you know a sense that this the famous arab street which probably is much more emotionally connected to hamas is, is oh, yeah. like you know, the gen the gen z kids running around feminists for hamas who want to put them in hijab you know and stop them playing basketball i i think they they 
also feel that they have to maintain a balance on their street as well. But I also think, you know, give me money and I'm I'm happy to talk to Hamas for you. I mean, there's an element of that. Right, so what conclusion are we coming to, Michael? We're, well, we're coming to the, the, uh, the conclusion is, when are they sending you back? Channel I, I don't know yet. I, I I was hoping to save it off until the second week of January, but I might I, that might be um, helpful. I might have to go back next week. I don't know. Yeah, I have no conclusion. I mean, my conclusion obviously is based entirely on on the biases formed by my own by my knowledge of Israel, and it, it's been the conclusion for more than a decade that until. Netanyahu is removed from public life. Yes. And, and I'm I'm not at all optimistic. I know how right-wing Israel has become since you know I first visited in 1970. Yes. Uh, in, in, in the happy days just uh, yes. after the 67 victory and it was people my age, you know, it was it was fabulous. And now that's that Israel no longer exists. The spirit of that Israel doesn't seem to exist very much. And it seems to me that to disassemble the jigsaw puzzle, which is what we need to do, because it seems to have been finished and stuck with explosions all around, that we that Netanyahu has to go and the government has to fall completely and not be reconstituted with we haven't even spoken about what's going on in the West Bank. Which is which is major. And of course that I mean you we should at least mention it because that, of course, is the next flashpoint and it's already happening. A lot of um, Palestinians are being killed and, you know, settlers who are enabled by the government. And now, you know, the very idea of the two-state solution, when you have 700,000 settlers in the West Bank and at least I think about 300,000 of them, if I'm right, are in the Jerusalem area who can probably be, you know, you can do that with a land swap. But you're talking about three to 400,000 who are in the West Bank proper and um you know, think remember how much fuss there was moving the settlers from gaza and there were only eight thousand of them absolutely and because two of the key uh members of the cabinet represent them you know yeah, that's right. ben gavir and smotrich this is it it is taking the idea of facts on the ground to a level that had has just not been seen in 55 years and I would say, I mean, my guess is that, that you wouldn't get much help from Saudi Arabia so long as the U.S. turns a blind eye to this kind of settlement and has to be much more demonstrative about saying no. And none of this happens so long as this particular Israeli government is in place. And I feel, I feel horrible because it, leaves, it lets Hamas off the hook in some ways. But it does seem to me that since you asked the question so directly, which is what happens when journalists interview journalists, the first piece that needs to be removed is this Israeli government. What do you think? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. You need new thinking on the on the Israeli side. New thinking on the Israeli side. And sometimes you hear old generals and other people say things that you think, yep, there's still people who are looking for a solution to this. And nobody is saying there's going to be a solution in the next, you know, year or, or two. But there has to be 
there has to be a different way forward and there cannot be a different way forward under the Israeli government that we have at the moment. Well, Lindsay, uh, thank you very much for taking time. And um, you said you described yourself as a mere journalist. You are not. Uh, you, uh, you, you are, you are my personal touchstone. Uh, um, no, it's, it's true. No, I, 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 I won't gush too much, but you are my personal touchstone on this. And, um, I, I know you don't want to go back for at least a, a couple of weeks, but I don't know. The sooner you're there, the the, the better the, the information flow is for. Thank you. Well, I'm about to go and listen to a novel on Audible and sort out the linen cupboard. That's what I'm going to do. Because there's a. I think that putting order on disorder is one way of keeping oneself sane through all this, I think. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks. Bye. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks again to Lindsay Hilsom for taking the time to speak with me. And a reminder, I'm now writing an FRDH column at Substack. You can make a donation there as well. Please do. Thanks.